I hope that you've opened to the book of Acts chapter 17 as quickly as possible. <laughs> Let's pray together and we'll dive into the Word of God. Lord God, thank you for this wonderful, marvelous day that you've given us in which to worship you and to sing your praises, to turn our thoughts to you, to realize your greatness. And we just pray that you will guide us through our study this morning. We want to thank you as always for our Lord Jesus Christ, for the salvation that he has provided fully and freely to us by our simply putting our faith in him and his finished work at Calvary. We can add nothing to it and we don't deserve it, but if we will put our trust in him, you give us eternal life, you make us a part of your family, and we pass from death to life. If there's even one in our midst this day in this service or perhaps was here in the first service, we pray that you might draw that one who needs Christ to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you're familiar with Acts 17. Acts 17 is Paul's ministry in Athens to the philosophers, the Athenian philosophers. And uh, I had a kind of Athenian moment when I was in seminary. And I thought I'd start out by sharing that with you. Uh, back in my seminary days, uh, there was a gas station that was not far from where I worked and not far from the seminary. And I pulled in one night to fill up with gas and uh, went inside to pay. And when inside the building, there was this gentleman on a ladder painting a wall. And he was at the top of his lungs singing the praises of Islam. Just preaching for anybody who would listen to him. And I paid for my gift. By the way, can you believe in those days you had to actually go inside to pay? You couldn't pay at the pump. But uh, at any rate, I paid and I left and I got in my car and I'm driving out of the driveway. And I, the thought came to me, I, I hope from the Lord, uh, but the thought came to me, you are a seminary student. And you're just driving off and you didn't even challenge that man about the things he was saying. So I went around the block, pulled into the gas station, parked my car, went inside, pretended I needed a can of oil, paid for it, and I went over to the man who was painting the wall on the ladder and I said, Sir, I perceive that you are very religious. That was my... Athenian moment. That's how Paul begins his message in Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Oropicus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, I continued to interact with this gentleman, and he got louder and louder and louder until he's shouting. And at that point, I looked around and realized that people were uncomfortable with what was happening. And so uh, I thought I'd better leave. And uh, that's what I did. So I don't know if anything I ever said made any uh, mark in this man or not. But uh, Paul's approach uh, in Acts chapter 17 is, a, is, is an amazing approach. It's an approach that uh, is something that we need as we interact with our own culture today because I think we have a culture more like Athens than we've ever had before. 
a culture without God, a culture that's given over to false gods and the idols. And I believe that we need Paul's approach to reaching out to those people who are no longer believers in God, that, that don't even believe a, a God exists, and to those who uh, uh, no longer have any understanding about the Bible. You know, it used to be that if you watched a movie or you watched TV, there were many, many biblical references. Today, you don't hear biblical references anymore. Our culture is devoid of understanding any of the Bible, understanding any of the biblical references. You are more likely to hear somebody praying to the gods of tennis or the gods of cooking or the gods of this or that than you are people who know God. Our culture has turned away from belief in God. And how are we going to reach them? That's the whole point, and that's the point of what we're studying in Acts chapter 17. Uh, one writer said this, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill is a classic example of what today is called contextualization. He did not begin with quotes from the Jewish scripture or a review of Hebrew history. Rather, Paul drew a pagan Greek poets, Paul drew on pagan Greek poets to establish a point of contact and then went on to proclaim God's truth. I think it's important that we use his model as we interact with our culture today. Now, that doesn't mean that we shy away from the scripture. It doesn't mean we shy away from biblical truth. But if we are going to get a hearing, we have got to identify with where the listener is. We've got to identify with where the listener is. More and more, you and I are engaging a biblically illiterate culture that no longer has the knowledge of God and no longer has the knowledge of the Scripture. And so I think this chapter is important to us, crucial to us. We must begin where Paul began in Acts 17 with the Creator God, the Sustainer God, the Sovereign Ruler God, and the God who will one day be their judge. I think that if we're going to reach out to our culture, we're going to have to use Paul's approach Paul's approach was to point to natural revelation. Paul's appoint, uh, approach was to point to the fact that there is something here versus nothing here. Where did it come from? Where did it come from? Did it always exist? Was it created? That's where we start. That's where we start. Well, we begin the way Paul did with the creator God, with the sustainer God, with the sovereign ruler God, and most importantly, with the God who will one day judge all. Now, another writer said, suit your approach to your audience, but don't change the gospel to make it more respectable. We're not talking about changing the gospel. We are talking about how we approach unbelievers. We're not talking about changing the gospel. We need to get start where they're at and move them to where we can share the gospel, where we can share the scripture, where we can share the word of God with them. We need to move them to that point. So we suit our approach, as the writer said to the audience, because we understand that more and more and more we are addressing a pagan, post-Christian audience. Well, the, the way the outline goes, 
is this. The first uh, verses, verses 16 to 21, gives us the setting. Chris talked about the setting three weeks ago. And uh, we'll just briefly mention the setting this morning. And then, starting in verse 22 of chapter 17, Paul begins his message. Now, chapter 17 is another one of those sample messages. Throughout the book of Acts, we are given by Luke samples of the kind of messages they preached. Uh, we were given the example of Paul's uh, preaching earlier in the book, of other uh, preaching in the book. And we're given here an example of Paul's preaching to the Athenians. And so that's what we have. Verses 22 to 31 of chapter 17 is Paul's message. The intro is in verses 22 and 23. Verse 24 talks about God as creator. Verse 25 talks about God as sustainer. Verses 26 to 29 talks about God as the sovereign, present, ruler over all. And verses 20, uh, excuse me, 30 to 31 speaks of God as future judge. Finally, verses 32 to 34 shows us the response of the people to Paul's message. So Athens is not unlike our world today. Um, in this particular chapter, we will have Paul's answer to the intellectual. We will have Paul's answer to the religious. And we will have Paul's answer to the philosopher. Paul's answer to the intellectual. Paul's answer to the religious, Paul's answer to the uh, philosopher. One writer said, Acts 17 is a model for us in the church today, facing a similar religious, philosophical, intellectual vacuum. Paul begins where his listeners were and leads them from their inadequate concepts of the truth. Well, let's take a look at Acts. Uh, as I said we uh, looked at this three weeks ago with Chris. While Paul, starting at verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and when you see that, waiting for them, you have to ask yourself, waiting for who? And of course, if you look up above, uh, the verses above, and you'll see who he's talking about. Paul's waiting for them. The them is Silas and Timothy. They stayed behind in Berea, and they ministered in Berea after Paul had to leave. Paul made his way eventually to Athens, but he was by himself at the time, and it was a bad time for him to be by himself because he was so upset by the idolatry he saw. He was so upset by the false gods that were honored by altars all over the city of Athens, and he was upset by them. While Paul was waiting for them, Paul was waiting for Silas, waiting for Timothy, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Uh, we ought to understand a little bit about Athens in that day. Athens was past its glory days. These were not the glory halcyon days of Athens. Rather, they occurred in the 4th and 5th centuries BC. Athens was still, however, an important city. Uh, it was no longer a political and commercial center uh, by Paul's time. It had a population of about 10,000, uh, but it was still an important cultural and intellectual and religious capital of the world. There was a great university there that students from all over the world came to, to attend. And so that's, that's the city. 
So it was still a cultural, still an intellectual capital, and indeed it was also a religious center as well. Romans loved anything Greek. Romans loved anything Greek. And so therefore, they allowed Athens to be a free city. Now, the things we learned about Athens here is Paul was greatly uh, distressed to see that the city was full of idols. The society, one writer called, called it, was cultural paganism. Uh, cultural paganism. Uh, they, they, it had beautiful art and beautiful architecture. And Paul went throughout the city and he could see the art and see the architecture, but he couldn't see its beauty because of all of the idols that troubled him so. All of the idols, everywhere you turned, there was an idol. Everywhere you turned, there was an altar. And so Paul could not enjoy the beauty. He could not enjoy the art because it distressed him to see how these people were given over to false gods, how these people were given over to idols. One writer said this, It was said that there were more statues of the gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together, and that in Athens it was easier to meet a god than a man. That's the society. That's the culture that Paul is involved with as he goes there. Verse 17, so he reasoned. In other words, he he, he just couldn't keep silent. He couldn't not say something. And uh, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day uh, by day with those who happened to be there. Paul was so upset by the idolatry, it drove him to share his faith. It drove him first to go to the synagogue, which was his normal practice. There he would find God-fearers. There he would find Jews who had an understanding of the Old Testament, who had an understanding of the Bible. But the problem is the city was much more populated by those who had no understanding of the Bible, no understanding of what the Word of God said, and in fact rejected the concepts of the Word of God. They were given over to idols. Idols displace God. Idols displace God. They become an object of devotion and an object of affection. These people were giving all their time, all their thought, all their energy to man-made things. To man-made things. That's why Paul, in his message to them, begins with the God who is creator, the God who is sustainer, the God who is sovereign, the God who is judge. Uh, idolatry is widespread in our world today. It's widespread among peoples of the world, whether they is the simple idolatry of the, of the animist or whether it's the great world's religions with their millions of adherents who worship images by so-called Christians. Idolatry is rampant in our world. Idolatry is present in even our nation, and present in our own lives. Our gods in America are science. 
technology, power, sex, money. Those are the gods of our society. Our society no longer understands the God of the Bible, no, under, no longer understands the God of natural revelation and the God of special rev revelation, but our society worships science. Our society worships technology. Our society, our society worships power and sex and money. That's where our society is. And we ought not to think that somehow we as Christians escape that idolatry, that we as Christians escape that idolatry. We can be as guilty as the non-Christian culture around us of chasing success and fulfillment and fame and looking, living for the things that make up a different kind of idolatry. Well, as we go on here, verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. And uh, the word dispute is an interesting word. It means to toss back and forth. <laughs> so uh, Paul would make a point, then over to you. They would make a point, then over to you, Paul. He would make a point, then back. That's what they, that's what they did. They disputed with one another. And uh, we read that they began to dispute with Paul. Some of them, they asked, what is this babbler trying to say? <clears throat> now, babbler, and I, uh, Chris explained this the other week, babbler means literally birds picking up seeds. Birds picking up seeds. And uh, the idea is a bird flies here, picks up a seed, and then flies to another place and drops that seed, picks up another seed, moves that seed to another place, and so on and so forth. So the idea of the of babbler, the idea was somebody who picks up ideas of others and promotes them as their own ideas. Promotes them as their own ideas. But there's a second thing that happened. Uh, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. They asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, what do they mean that he was preaching foreign gods? Why gods, plural? Obviously, we know Paul is preaching about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, uh, but that's not where their misunderstanding is. They believe he is introducing foreign gods. They thought he was advocating foreign gods because they thought that he was talking about Jesus and Anastasia. Now, where did they get the Anastasia being the consort of Jesus? Remember, that's where their thinking was. That's the, that's the thinking of the carnal mind. So the question is, where did they get the idea of Jesus and Anastasia? Well, in Greek, Anastasis is resurrection. So Jesus is speaking, I mean, uh, Paul is speaking about Jesus Christ, telling them their need of Jesus Christ, and he's talking about Jesus, who is the resurrected one, Jesus, Anastasis. And they took Anastasis instead of resurrection to be Anastasia, a consort of Jesus. And that's where they got the idea that Paul was somehow uh, advocating foreign 
gods. Now, we need to understand a little bit about the Epicureans and the Stoics. And again, uh, Chris had introduced us to uh, uh, the Stoics and the, the uh, Epicureans. What we need to know, the, the key things we need to understand, because these were the driving philosophies of Athens. These were the driving philosophies of Athens. What we need to understand is if the Epicureans had a motto, it would be enjoy life. If the Epicureans had a motto, it would be enjoy life. They followed Epicurus, uh, for the Epicurean pleasure was the chief goal of life. One should seek to be free of pain, avoid pain, and not fear death. They believed that death ends it all. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. They did not believe in the immortality of the soul. That's the Epicureans. They believed that they believed in, in God's little g, but thought that they were remote from man's concerns. That's why Paul begins in his message by talking about the God who created all that we see, the God who created us. That's why Paul in his message talks about the God who sustains us, takes care of us, meets our needs. God is not some God who created us and went off no longer caring about us, no longer looking back to see how we're doing. God is a God who cares. And so Paul's message is meant to answer this idea that somehow God is remote from mankind's concerns. Happiness to the Epicurean was achieved by avoiding excesses and avoiding the fear of death and loving mankind and seeking tranquility. To the Epicurean, everything happens by chance. Do you see when Paul begins to talk about God as the sovereign ruler of the universe, he is saying just the opposite. He is moving them to where he wants to be, where he wants them to be, where he wants their thinking to be. They believe that everything happens by chance. Paul says it doesn't happen by chance. God is in control. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Well, that's, there's so much more, but that's the Epicureans. The Stoics, if they had a motto, it would be endure life. The Epicureans, their motto was enjoy life. The Stoics was endure life. And uh, that was the, the Stoics uh, were, uh, believed that apathy was the highest moral attainment. Uh, they believed uh, in pantheism, that is God is in everything and God is everything. God is that chair. God is this pulpit or in that chair, in this pulpit. That's what they believed. It's called pantheism. And see, again, do you see how Paul, when we get to his message in a minute or two, Paul is answering those concerns. Paul is explaining that God is, is not created. God is creator. God is not a part of creation. He created everything. He created everything. He existed before creation existed. So you see how Paul is answering the points of the Epicureans and the points of the Stoics. The Stoics were pantheistic, God in everything. They viewed God as the world soul, which means that they denied a personal God. 
They denied a personal God. They denied that God is personally involved in anyone's life, personally involved in your life, personally involved in my life. They denied that. Again, can you see, uh, as we look at Paul's message, can you see how by showing that God is creation, God is sustainer, God is ruler, how by, by showing that, what Paul is saying is that God is a personal God. He's not an impersonal force. He's not an impersonal uh, entity, but rather he is a personal God. The Stoics were very moral. They had a sense of duty. They were proud. They were self-sufficient. Uh, they believed that a great purpose guided history and that man's requirement was to align himself with this purpose to be in harmony with nature. That's, that's kind of the Cliff's Note version of the Epicureans and the Stoics, the people that Paul was facing in Athens. Well, in verse 20 we read, uh, by the way, the Oropagus was both the name of a place and the name of a judicial body. Oropagus was the name of a place, but it was also the name of a judicial body. Now, by this time in, in Athens' history, the Oropagus, as the judicial body, had limited power. Uh, its only jurisdiction was over religion and education. It had a membership of about 30, and they were city administrators. And the important thing to Paul is they could decide whether he could continue to preach or not. That was the important thing to Paul in this particular issue. Well, verse 21 tells us all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Verse 22, Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Paul calls them very religious. Now, uh, the term very religious in Greek is literally translated this way to rightly, to rigidly rather, to rigidly fear or reveal, re, let me try it again, to rigidly fear or revere deities or evil spirits. You see what Paul is subtly saying to these uh, philosophers? He's saying to them that you're a very religious people. You have all of these idols that you worship. You have all of these altars, even one to an unknown God. And behind those idols, behind those, those false gods, are demons. That's what Paul is subtly saying to these philosophers uh, as he speaks with them. They had many objects of worship, altars, idols, temples. And uh, Paul is basically saying to them, what you are worshiping is not God. What you are worshiping is not God. What you are worshiping are the demons that are behind the idols and behind the altars. So he is trying to open their eyes to that. The shrine to the unknown God 
they wanted to appease every possible deity and receive benefits from them. You see, that's what the whole idea behind idolatry is, that God gives us benefits. We don't worship God. We don't serve God unless he gives us something. That's not the Christian point of view. The Christian point of view is that God first gives us something and we worship him for it. Their point of view was that you could entice God to give you something. And so therefore, they have, they have these objects of worship and they wanted to appease every possible deity and receive benefits from every possible deity. And so they even built a shrine to the unknown God. They even built a shrine to the unknown God. Now, there's a history to this. There's a history to this that is uh, fascinating to me. Uh, 600 years previously, there was a terrible pestilence in Athens. 600 years previous to the time of Paul, there was a terrible pestilence in, in Athens. And they sent, the city sent for Epimenides to come, the, the philosopher Epimenides to come and to deal with it. Now, I'm going to share from what one writer, how one writer described how Athens wound up with the unknown God. Epimenides instructed the council members to bring to the Oropagus, where the council held its meetings, a flock of hungry sheep, half of them white and half black. Stonemasons should also be brought along with a supply of stones and mortar. At dawn, the flock was released on the grassy hill. Epimenides prayed a humble prayer, acknowledging their pitiful ignorance of his name and asking the unknown God to look with compassion and forgiveness on this city. He prayed that this God would reveal his willingness to help by causing the sheep that pleased him, black or white, to lie down on the grass instead of grazing. <coughs> each, ship, each sheep that laid down was sacrificed to the unknown God, and an altar was constructed on the spot where the animal laid down. Can you imagine the scene? You have all of these animals, and you have them roaming the hillside, and one makes the awful mistake of sitting down right there, sacrificed. And then right there behind them are the stonemasons building an altar. So actually at a time, there, there was a time when Athens had many altars to unknown gods. Many altars to unknown gods. And so each sheep that lay down was sacrificed to the unknown god on an altar constructed on the spot where the animal lay down. Some of these altars bore the inscription Agnostotheo, which meant to an unknown god. According to Greek storytellers, the plague began to lift the very next day. Within a week, the sick had recovered. Athens was praising Epimenides, unknown god. But after six centuries, all they knew of this god was that he had forgiven Athens and removed this plague. Six hundred years, they knew nothing more about this unknown god. Why? Because he didn't exist. He didn't exist. Well, that leads to Paul's message. And uh, we, we need to look at what Paul has to say to them. The message begins in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Paul begins there with God as creator. 
and I don't have time to turn, but I, I would urge you to look at Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Psalm 19, that's a psalm of David which expresses the fact that God is the creator God and when you and I look up at the sky, when we look at the sun, when we look at the moon, when we look at the stars, we are seeing evidence that God exists. And the evidence is all across the world. Creation can be seen by any people in any place of any language, of any time, of any culture. God's existence can be seen just simply by looking up at the sky. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God's power and Godhead are seen when we look at the creation, when are seen by the things that he has made. That is what Paul's doing here when he shows them that God is creator. That answers some wrong views, such as the views of the philosophers that matter is eternal. What Paul is saying is matter is not eternal. Rather, matter came into existence. Why? Because God created. Matter came into existence because God created. So God as creator answers that false view that matter is eternal. God as creator answers pantheism. Uh, if God created, then he's distinct from his creation. He is not a part of the, the chair, a part of the pulpit. He's not a part of the walls. He's not a part of... He is distinct from creation. God as creator answers polytheism because Paul tells us that one God, the God, made the world, created the world. It answers atheism. It answers the charge that there is no God. If there is no God, where did all this come from? What can explain all that we see if there's no God? So Paul answers that. Then in verse 25, And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. You see, they worship these false gods, giving these false gods so-called honor and sacrifices, and they worship these false gods. But what Paul is saying, the real God, the true God, the God of heaven, doesn't need human hands doesn't need anything we can give him. God is the sustainer of the universe. The Epicureans said God is not involved. Paul said God is involved. God is involved. God is the sustainer. God is not dependent upon his creatures for anything. He is not sustained by, by us. We are sustained by him. You see how one by one Paul is answering the wrong views of the Athenians, of the Athenian philosophers. Um, it contradicts, God as sustainer contradicts the idea that somehow God is dependent upon their worship and service. Well, verses 26 to 29, Paul talks about God as sovereign, present ruler, we read this, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. 
God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, and, and here is where Paul quotes pagan poets. Now, does that surprise you that Paul would quote a pagan poet? He's not uh, verifying everything these poets say. He is merely saying, for illustration purposes, I want to show you Athenians. I want to show you philosophers. I want to show you intellectuals that even your own poets have said similar things. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's the Cretan poet Epimenides, who Paul also quotes in Titus chapter 1. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are, are his offspring. That's Erastus and Cleanthes, pagan poets. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. What Paul is saying here is that God reveals himself in creation and history, and he does it so that men and women would seek him. He reveals himself in creation. He reveals himself in history. Mankind has a common ancestor. We are all, we all come from Adam. We have a common ancestor. That answered the, the Athenian claim of racial superiority. God had a purpose in revealing himself. Though he is sovereign, he is imminent. That is, he isn't far removed from creation. He's not so far removed from creation that he can't be found. He is sovereign, but he's not inaccessible. He is sovereign, but he's not inaccessible. Again, Paul quotes the secular poets to buttress his argument. Verse 29 is the logical conclusion. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by man's design and skill. In other words, the logical conclusion is that God made us in his image. Therefore, we should not think of God as an image of our own design and creation. If God made us in his image, then God could not be metal. God could not be stone. We're not metal. We're not stone. We have personality. We have intellect, emotion. We have will as God does. We are made in God's image. We should not consider that somehow these idols are good representations of God. If you start with man, you get an inadequate concept of God. If you start with man, you get an inadequate concept of God. Well, the last thing, verses 30 to 31, that Paul talks about is God as judge. He says in verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Basically, what he's saying is, in the past, he made himself known by natural revelation. You look up into the sky, you can know he exists. That's what Psalm 19, Romans 1 says. He made himself known by natural revelation. Anybody, anywhere in the world has access to natural revelation. They can see God's existence. And God held 
mankind to natural revelation. But, Paul goes on, he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by what? Raising him from the dead. He's back, he's come full circle to the resurrection, full circle to the resurrected Christ. So, God at one time judged by natural revelation. Now they have been given special revelation. Now they have been told about the Savior who died for them. Now they have been told about the Savior with whom they must do business or face Him as judge. Now they know. And they are responsible. That's the message that we need to bring to our culture who no longer has biblical knowledge, our culture who no longer has the knowledge of God or believes in God, we have to show them God is the creator God. God is the sustainer God. God is the the sovereign present ruler of the world. God will come as judge. Life is not a march to extinction as the Epicureans said, life is not a pathway to absorption to God, as the Stoics said. Rather, life is a journey to the judgment seat of God. Salvation is through Christ, the appointed judge. To reject Jesus is to reject the personal and vicarious intervention of God on the behalf of all men, women, boys, and girls to open oneself up to future judgment by the one rejected, one writer said. Well, what was the result? Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropicus. Now, a lot of people make the charge that Paul didn't have much response. Paul didn't have many people come to faith because he took a philosophical route and he should have not done that. He should have done the thing that he always did in synagogues among uh, the Jews. And so they make that charge against him. But I want you to think about this. How many members were there of the Oropicus? 30. 30. One of those 30 came to faith in Jesus Christ. I'll take those odds. If I could bring one, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. If I could bring one of 30 in the House of Representatives to faith in Jesus Christ, I would consider myself very fortunate and blessed. If I could bring one of 30 senators one of 30 governors to faith in Jesus Christ. I think he was successful. I think they, he wasn't the only one. Also, a woman named Damaris and a number of others came to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the bottom line is we need to begin where people are at and bring them to the place where we can share the good news about Jesus Christ. You see, the answer is not political and the answer is not social and the answer is not education. The answer is not philosophy. 
Rather, we must begin telling the people around us about the Creator who made them, loved them, redeemed them, and to whom they will have to answer. Let me close with this. The God, one writer said, the God whom Paul proclaims is not just another option for human devotion, not an accommodating God content to be one among many. The God who sent the Christ is still the Holy One of Israel, a jealous deity without rivals, an exclusive lover who tolerates no competition, money, sex, philosophical ideals, institutions, who fiercely judges all idols made by the hands or minds of men. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Paul's message. Help us to remember when we speak to those without biblical understanding, without the knowledge of you or of the Bible, that we start where they are at, and we introduce them to the God who is creator, the God who is involved in their lives as sustainer, the God who is sovereign ruler over everything, and the God before whom we will all stand. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.